Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. If you're listening to this on, on Thursday the 22nd, then I am doing something terribly exciting today. I am recording the first ever live episode of Skylines at the New Local Government Network conference in London's Guildhall. Very glamorous location there. But uh, that I, I'm not sure how that's going to go. It is possible that's going to take rather more rather more editing, rather more technical fiddling than one would ideally hope. So I decided I'm going to hold that one back for next week to give us a chance to kind of, you know, clean it up, pretend it went rather better than it actually did, you know. So instead, today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with one of the authors of a book on the first U.S. capital. The book's called In Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City. And I'll let my interviewee introduce himself. So, uh, yeah, I'm Nathaniel Popkin, and I'm, I'm a writer and author, and I live in Philadelphia, and I've lived here for 30 years, uh, off and on. And I, you know, I've lived elsewhere. I'm a, a, a long student of cities, generally. American cities, maybe a little bit more, but, you know, I've thought about and read about uh, cities all over the world, so it's something that's important to me. Uh, I'm also a literary critic and an editor, so I spend a lot of time particularly with um, fiction in translation, and I'm always drawn to work by authors who who try to characterize their city, who explore their city, who reach into that deep bucket that they have. I'm thinking like Robbie Jobber, a novelist from Beirut. And that's what motivates me to do the work I do. So for, for me, Philadelphia, in my work, I have written, this is my third nonfiction book that attempts to characterize the city, the contemporary city uh, of Philadelphia, so the city in the present day. I have also have my second novel coming out, and so those books are set here. And they also tend to explore the same kinds of tensions that exist at the surface and then a little bit more deeply on the streets of Philadelphia. And I can say one thing that Philadelphia uniquely, I think in the American landscape of cities is always in kind of a tantalizing tension, the city in the present day with the city of the past. 
you know, it's always trying to reckon with the past. And then it's always at the same time, very powerfully trying to reckon with the future. So it's always in tension with the future. That is the city that might be or the possible city. And that was actually the name of one of my books. So Philadelphia is it's a pretty big city, isn't it? It's near the East Coast. It's in that kind of East Coast metropolitan uh, region between between New York and Washington. What's kind of unique about it? What is it that kind of draws you to writing about Philly as opposed to any of these other cities? Is it just because it's your home or there are more specific things? It could be just because I know it so well. or, or I've come to know it. And, and actually, the signal thing for someone who's an urban observer is that after 30 years of observing this city, I'm not bored with it. And I'm still finding, I'm still seeing it differently. And actually, through this book, Philadelphia Finding the Hidden City, I've come to see the city differently. And, and that's a kind of remarkable achievement or, or change for me. So, yes, Philadelphia, fifth largest city in the United States, once once the largest, once the second largest, once the third largest, <laughs> once the fourth largest, now the fifth largest. So, you know, there, it's a city of loss in, in that regard. And I think people understand that to some extent. It was the nation's capital. It was the state capital. It was the financial capital of the of the early U.S. It was the Manchester, I guess we would say, probably second only to Manchester as a city of uh, industrial might of the 19th century. So those things and probably those are understandable um, narratives for Liverpudlians or or people from Manchester to understand that. Uh, and, and I, and I think that's present in Philadelphia. For me, it's, it's a combination of a city of contradiction. It's a combination for me of the kinds of contradictions that we face in Philadelphia that are so apparent in the streetscape. So it's always been from the very get go, both a city of incredible ambition. William Penn wanted to create a great city, a great port city. And at the same time, he was plagued with this notion of creating a safe green city that would be tempered from both moral turpitude and also things like fire. So he experienced the London fire. So we've internalized these contradictions from the very beginning, and you can actually read them in the streetscape. This is a very, very complicated place, in part because of its form that respects the human being at the sort of personal level. And, and here's a good example. So it's almost silly, but it also is a helpful example. The signal event you know, an annual event in New York City is the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And during the Thanksgiving Day Parade, you spend your time with your head cranked up to the sky, looking at the floats go by, and it's a, it's a moment of wonder. Well, we have our moments of wonder in Philadelphia. We also have a signal parade event, which is called the Mummers Parade, and a concept that comes from parts of Great Britain and other places in Europe. And that happens on New Year's Day. Uh, and it's a controversial kind of event for the ways that certain kinds of um, attitudes get played out in the Mummers Parade and the socioeconomic and demographic dimensions to it. But, but beyond that, it's a parade for people. And as it goes along Broad Street for miles and miles, hour after hour, people join into it. They come into the street and dance with the performers. So it, it this is a city where Everything turns personal and is weighted to the ground in a certain way. And at the same time, as I said, it was it's a city of contradictions. Philadelphia had the first tallest building in North America. In the 18th century, we had the tallest building in North America, which was Christ Church. And, you know, so there was this ambition to build tall. Again, 
in the 19th century, our city hall was meant to be the tallest building in the world, but the Eiffel Tower beat it out by the time it was completed. During the World's Fair of 1876, we had built the largest buildings in the world. And, and that ambition gets reflected in all kinds of ways. So there's this on-the-ground-level thing, thing about the city that gets represented in the row house form of our streets, and there is a soaringness that, that plagues us too because we still want to be, and we still believe ourselves to be one of the great cities in the world, and Philadelphia was a top 10 city by population, probably until about 1920. I mean, as, as we've kind of touched on, like, Philadelphia was, like, one of the key cities in the early history of the, well, firstly, the colonial era, and then the early history of the United States. And it's since been overtaken, first by sort of Chicago and those Midwestern cities, but also Washington, D.C. as a planned capital, and then the rise of the West, and so on. Do you reckon this kind of has an impact on, on the psyche of the city, this kind of knowledge of, of kind of, for want of a, a better way of putting it, sort of lost, lost greatness, lost stature? Yeah, there's no question that part of our narrative that we imbibe and inhabit personally is that that narrative of loss. You know, this is both realer than people from the outside believe it to be and less less ridiculous, less absurd. So, as you know, the Eagles won the Super Bowl last night. And part of that narrative is that a football team was a team of underdogs. So we take that underdog role personally. We have a chip on our shoulder because of all those losses that get reflected in sports or whatever, or the loss of stature. All cities, including London, endured an economic collapse of the 1970s. So all, all of the cities of the West lost population, not including places like probably Houston and Los Angeles and places of the American West. But those traditional cities of the Western Hemisphere all got their asses kicked in the 1970s by deindustrialization and a kind of collapse of the urban order. Some cities, though, recovered a lot better. Uh, European cities like Paris and London recovered a bit faster. New York and Boston recovered a bit faster than Philadelphia. So there's this kind of enduring thing that we're still trying to catch up. It's real. I mean, Philadelphia was the financial center of the new United States. And it was until the 1830s and almost the 1840s, we had the central bank and all of the most important banks that underscored the financial system of the new country existed here. And we kept some of that uh, into the 20th century. But those banks are still here. Like we can walk by and say, there, there's the loss. There's that Greek revival, Greek temple of a bank that once held the deposits of the United States Treasury well into the 19th century, doesn't anymore. So we can feel it. We can see it. We can know that we were the most productive place in North America in the late 19th century and know that. We don't produce anything anymore. So it is real. But at the same time, our economic system is large. This is a region of over six million people. It's diverse. It counters that narrative, too. And so, as I said, it's both not as serious as it's made out to be and also real. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So why does that decline happen? Like, Why is it that Philadelphia is, is one of the great cities of the United States in in 1820, but it's kind of lost that status by 1920. Is it just the, the expansion of the country? I mean, what's the, what's the logic here? I think there's a couple things. The logic is, I think, that the city that pioneers so much inevitably falls behind. So if you pioneer environmental protection for your water system in the early 19th century by building a park around the river that feeds your water system and building the first municipal water system in North America in the very early 19th century, inevitably, it's going to be hard to keep up, keep that at the forefront. And, it, and you don't. And so by the late 19th century, where you once had like an ice skating mecca, like one of the great ice skating meccas of North America was in Philadelphia in the middle of the 19th century. By the late 19th century, the water of the of our two rivers is too polluted to for it to freeze, you know, reliably freeze. And so I think it's part of being ahead. You can't stay ahead. And then the country moves west. And other places, of course, Chicago demands a kind of hegemony. And then it moves west continuously and until Los Angeles and California. But I will say there's another logic as well that's maybe more particular to Philadelphia, and that's in part that Philadelphia actually remained in incredibly relevant and significant to the foundation of this country, its politics, its business in, in profound ways. The Pennsylvania Railroad, which was based in Center City, Philadelphia, was the largest corporation in America and well into the 20th century. So the economic relevance, the Drexel Bank was one of the great banks of the United States well into the 20th century and so on. And we produced more of the consumer products that were that made the middle class of the United States than any other city. So that relevance continued, continued, continued. I, I say until about 1925. And that's when deindustrialization began for various reasons here. And at the same time, the city began to be, or, or the, the, the grasp of a very corrupt political machine got harder on the city's politics and economics and strangled the city so fiercely in the later part of the 1920s that though there was major ambition to build public works, and some of those things were built, such as the first suspension bridge in the United States, the Benjamin Franklin Bridge, 
That was about 1925. But then you get a little further into that decade and the city bankrupts itself because of corruption, trying to put on a World's Fair for the sesquicentennial of the United States and fails to build the infrastructure that it needs to continue growing, bankrupts itself so that the depression begins a little bit earlier. That political machine somehow maintains power and it's a Republican machine. And so it eschews the New Deal for quite a long time, making it harder for the city to recover until 1936 or 1937, by which time it's a little bit too late and some major issues have not been taken care of. Meanwhile, New York has built 11 new skyscrapers, um, taking advantage of cheaper labor during the Depression. That's when Philadelphia really slips and, and gets really crushed by the Depression. The manufacturing base comes back a little bit substantially during World War II, where one of six dollars that the United States government spent on the war effort was spent in the Philadelphia region, mostly on manufacturing of all kinds, from materials to ships and armaments. But when the war ends, the deindustrialization, you know, it makes those plants which which sort of retrofitted themselves for war production, they're no longer relevant to the economic system. And the building of the interstate highway system, which you know made it very difficult for a lot of cities, particularly of the East Coast. These things became particularly hard because of the economic and political makeup of Philadelphia, and the city fell further behind. And at the same time, was so wedded to that manufacturing economy that it held on to it and made a political attempt through policy to keep the industrial base alive. They actually they pioneered policy to try to keep industry working in the city by creating industrial parks instead of giving up on it and retrofitting the economy for finance and service as Boston and New York did much more rapidly. And that holding on, one of the concepts in Philadelphia, finding the hidden city, is the notion of the long goodbye. We were were rich enough to build an epic amount of monumental buildings of all kinds in the 19th century, but we were too poor in the late 20th century to wipe them out, to erase them. (laughs) And that sort of engendered that long goodbye. We held on. We hold on to things dearly in Philadelphia. It's the sense of everything being very felt very personally here. For a city of a million and a half people, which doesn't sound that large anymore, maybe in the 21st century, it's a substantial amount of people in a region of six million, almost seven probably at this point. Things are felt personally here. And you can sort of follow that back to the structure, the, the physical form of the city based on the row house. So as, you, as you've, you mentioned, the book is called Philadelphia, Finding the Hidden City. That's kind of quite an intriguing title what, what, what exactly is the hidden city you've been in you've been in search of there well it has many meetings it was in 1961 i think uh, a writer by the name of nathaniel burt fairly substantial nonfiction writer of his day wrote a book called the perennial philadelphians and he sought to make sense of philadelphia in that moment but in in the way his mind was geared and also the way a lot of people you know who had seen like films like the Philadelphia story they sort of alighted Philadelphia with Philadelphia's legacy upper class we have a very european like or have and there's only remnants of of course left today but well into the 20th century we had a legacy aristocracy in this city that was land based you know it was based in its suburban estates where wealth was passed down in an almost un-American sort of way. And Nathaniel Burt, 
in ex- trying to characterize the world that those people lived in, called it the hidden city. But he also tried to turn that concept towards the city as a whole, and he actually called it, you know, it's a city that hides its secrets. It's built behind an oriental wall. And what he meant by that was that there was a metaphysical wall that when people from New York or California came here, they couldn't quite understand it. And at the same time, there was a physical wall that was known as the Chinese wall that was the Pennsylvania Railroad viaduct that ran straight through the center of the city, splitting it in half and down to Broad Street Station, which at one point was the largest railroad terminal in the world. And and so here was this, this city behind its forbidden wall. We sort of took that concept and took it as far as, as we could in terms of trying to understand its various meanings to the city of today. Some of that is going underground. On the cover is a picture of a 20-foot sewer culvert, the Mill Creek sewer, with water department worker walking through it. So, that, of course, there's a hidden underground city. There's a city that gets hidden over and over again through its accumulated layers. And we posit that Philadelphia, unlike New York and other cities of the United States, has developed in a different pattern that is mostly by accretion, with layers building up over time and never by catastrophic means by fire, earthquake, or massive growth. And a way to think about this is that 100 years ago, 1918, Philadelphia had the same population size of one and a half million people that it has today. So you have a flatline city and that flatline guards massive growth and then steep decline of deindustrialization. But at the same time, it tells us a story of a city that is far more stable and that grows slowly through an accretive process than one that grows or changes by catastrophic change, uh, such as the way that Rem Koolhaas, for example, thinks about New York in Delirious New York. So we sort of posit that as an opposite in in our book. And so some of the hidden cities hidden in those layers. Some of our, it is hidden narratives that well into the 20th century don't show up in the main narrative of Philadelphia. That is, say, African-American city. This was the first great black city of the United States. And yet, well, in, you know, Nathaniel Burton, his book about Philadelphia 1961, could hardly mention black life in the city. He wouldn't even have known what it was if he fell on it. And yet, such a vital piece of the city that there's no question that, you know, what's no, what do we know about it from the early 20th century? We know the Harlem Renaissance, but we don't know that such an enormous number of um, major black artistic figures lived here on South Street and inhabited a world that has largely been hidden from our own narrative about our city. So there, there are narrative layers that are hidden. So we try to take that conceit as far as we can while well, not losing control of the concept in this book. As, as I said, I think Philadelphia is not a city that people overseas would necessarily have a clear mental image of in the way they do with New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco and so on. Philadelphia is kind of not, not quite as, as well known outside the United States. What is unique about it? How would you sort of sell it to, to uh, a, a British person planning a trip to the US? Like how, what, why should they go to Philly rather than somewhere else? There is a funny combination here of a kind of European form or sensibility about what a city should feel like. That is, we have a real center. So last night after the Eagles won uh, the Super Bowl, what happens in Philadelphia is, I think, very particular. The minute the game is over, everyone walks out their front door, you know, in a, in a row house neighborhood, walks out their front door, and all of a sudden there's a communing of people in the street, and they all walk 
together towards the center of the city, towards Broad Street, and they all gather there. And there's a kind of almost a force that's guiding them, an emotional force, a force of like lived patterns for, for, for decades and centuries that is present in the way we live in the city today. And, and I think that's really particular. I can't imagine another city in America. You have to understand that most cities in America are decentralized. They're not densely populated. They don't really, even, even like where the Super Bowl was, Minneapolis, doesn't hold together in the same way. That's a very basic American city in the same way that Philadelphia does in its traditional form, uh, and its density. And yet that row house architecture mean, means that it's personal. So people walk out and they join each other in the street. We'll also say that it's a very beautiful city. It's almost like, you know, the Englishness of the city, you know, it's like Portugal and Brazil. There's something more English about Philadelphia maybe than London in a, in a, in a kind of way. In a, and it's almost as if we speak old English here. Like if you walk on some of our, our smaller streets that, that feel like they would come from the old world. And so, then, and somehow has been protected and preserved here. So there's an extraordinary charm that rubs right up against massive glass skyscrapers. The city was planned by William Penn. And so it, it has a kind of order to it that is understandable. And then I would say that it is so notably a place of contrast and contradiction and humanity in terms of race, in terms of wealth, in terms of expression. So if I can be succinct and answer your question, I think Philadelphians are the reason that people ought to visit Philadelphia. <laughs> it's the people, it's their passion, connection to the city and to each other. Uh, I had an Italian friend stay here. We house swapped and we stayed in her uh, apartment in Torino. She lived here and she was here during July 4th. And she said, I learned what the magic about what Philadelphia is. It's the people. And it's that connection across race, across ethnicity, immigrant status. Uh, it's reflected in today in the way we're so cognizant of trying to be respectful of each other and welcoming to immigrants at a very fraught moment in American history. And that's felt on the street. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 